Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Canadian anthropologist, author, and political activist, Dr. Jeremy Narvi. Jeremy has been supporting Indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon for decades. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Cosmic Serpent, as well as Intelligence in Nature, Shamans Through Time, The Psychotropic Mind, and a documentary film that you ought to see called Night of the Liana. Jeremy, his quest has been to integrate scientific thought with the wisdom and knowledge of indigenous shaman, and also to teach us that intelligence is not exclusive to human beings. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Richard. Where shall we begin? What, what interests me, uh, we're going to talk today, of course, about your book, uh, Plant Teachers. But what I wanted to begin with for a bit is about intelligence in other than human beings. I would, I'm fascinated by, by some of the things that you've commented on, particularly prairie dogs, because I'm a great lover of canines. Well, it's a, a somewhat tricky subject, but that just makes it uh, more interesting. Western cultures, and by this I mean people who speak English, French, German, Spanish, people who, so North Americans, Canadians, people globally um, in Western culture, uh, come out of a tradition, a humanist tradition, that has put humans above all other species for centuries. Um, and intelligence uh, was conceived by European thinkers. I mean, intelligence is a Latin word, interlegere, to choose between. That's what the etymology of the word is. And European thinkers uh, have considered that it was one of um, humanity's numerous specificities. Only humans had intelligence. Only humans had mind. Only humans had a long shopping list of things, supposedly, and intelligence was one of them. Um, it would be too long to go into just why Western people had this proclivity of putting themselves, of putting themselves above all other species in this way. We were supposed to be the only subjects and all the rest were objects. Um, and so on. So intelligence was on the shopping list of what was supposed to be um, our specificity. We had the monopoly on it, supposedly. It was supposed to be one of our treasures, what made us human. And so then philosophers and other thinkers went on to squabble for centuries over the definition of this precious thing that was intelligence. And there are about 70 different definitions of intelligence, the overwhelming majority of which are in exclusively human terms. So if you're um, strict with words, it's very difficult to apply the concept to other species because by definition, it is conceived of in exclusively human terms. Um, well, interestingly enough, Nature is uh, another Western concept that um, also has a similar kind of opposition. Nature is everything that culture is not, and culture is everything that nature is not. If you look in the dictionary, the definition of nature is the phenomena of the physical world, including plants, animals, and the landscape, uh, in opposition to humans and human creations. So. In these very Western concepts, such as intelligence and nature, we have, if you unpack the, the, the bag, the, the luggage of these concepts, you have this dichotomy between humans on the one hand and uh, all the rest on the other. And in fact, intelligence in nature is a contradiction in terms, if, if one looks at it like that, because 
intelligence excludes all the non-humans and nature excludes the humans. Um, and this is just a by definition. And I can give a, an easy example of this. So we, if we get, before getting to prairie dogs, I'll, I'll start with slime molds. So these are, um, well, single cells of slime that can actually grow as big as a human hand, but that's another matter. And Japanese scientists discovered uh, right at the beginning of the 21st century that if you put one of these uh, organisms in a, in a, a small maze, that they could um, shrink their body down to form a tube that would span the shortest distance between the entrance and the exit of the maze, and therefore could solve a maze. Well, solving a maze was supposed to be proof of intelligence in uh, tests that scientists used to do on this. So when the Japanese scientist Toshiyuki Nakagaki published his results of a single cell of slime solving a maze, he used the word intelligence to describe uh, what the organism had managed to do, to describe its behavior. And then he found that there were two reactions to um, his publication. Um, Japanese journalists wanted to know how the slime had solved the maze. Western journalists mainly questioned whether the word intelligence was appropriate to apply to a single cell of slime. Um, I think at the beginning of the 21st century, Western thinkers and journalists were starting to feel okay with applying intelligence to uh, large vertebrates like uh, chimpanzees and so forth, but certainly not to a single cell of uh, slime. Well, in Japanese, the, if you look in the dictionary under intelligence, how, how do you say intelligence in Japanese? It, it, the word is chi sei, and it means capacity to know. Well, uh, the Japanese people uh, think it is just obvious that all living organisms have a capacity to know. So they don't question um, uh, the fact that a slime mold can solve the maze and uses its capacity to know uh, to do so. Well, Japanese people come out of a Shintoist animist culture. There has never been that tendency to make uh, an absolute distinction between humans on the one hand and all the rest on the other. But not us Westerners, and it's true that the word intelligence has been used so often in a way that is applied uh, exclusively to humans that it's very difficult to apply it to other organisms, especially when they're lowly organisms like uh, a slime mold. So. What that little story shows is that we have a problem with our concepts because, and when I say we, I mean Western people speaking Western languages with words like intelligence that have centuries worth of, of baggage that make it very difficult to, um, to apply to other species. So um, it, actually, it's not that other species lack intelligence, but that our own concepts do. And at this point, there are so many different definitions of intelligence that it's probably not very intelligent to come up with another one. Jeremy, why, why is this important? Why does it matter that we define in Western culture uh, intelligence as something specific to human beings and not to trees, not to prairie dogs, not to Rupert Sheldrake's dogs that can that know when people are coming a mile away you know why is this important we're talking about you say the philosophers have been discussing this for a couple of hundred years and so many people would say so what that's what li philosophers like to do they like to pick apart a concept for a couple of hundred years but how does that affect our lives this this definitional system why should we care about this well um if you presuppose that the slime mold is just a bunch of stupid slime, you're probably not going to 
look at it much further. But if you consider that it actually does have a capacity to know just like we do, then you'll take the step of taking it a bit more seriously. And lo and behold, what did they discover just in the case of the slime mold? That when you put it uh, in a complex terrain um, and then you you get it to uh, 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 choose the fastest or most economical routes from one place to another, it comes up with solutions that are just as elegant as the Tokyo subway. In other words, these uh, uh, organisms, uh, using their capacity to know, um, have come up with all kinds of interesting solutions to problems that also that, that we also face. So there's a whole domain uh, that is opened up of uh, biomimicry, of, of studying what or other organisms do to inspire ourselves from their solutions. So that's a, just a very uh, pragmatic and, and concrete thing. But more broadly, um, and I'd say almost like philosophically, if you're, you can wander around and consider that all the other beings in the world apart from humans are just stupid objects. You know, your lawn is stupid, the trees are stupid, the slime molds are stupid, the ants are stupid, everybody's stupid, and we're the only intelligent ones. Hey. And actually, our legal systems for the moment more or less look at things that way. In other words, uh, most legal systems consider plants and animals as objects, and humans are the only subjects. So that's essentially the world we live in. Uh, uh, right now. It's kind of a lonely world. I mean, it it denies so many things that these other species do, so it doesn't really fit the data. And it's somewhat lonely. I mean, you know, what 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 is the joy of discounting all living beings except humans and denying all the uh, capacities that they do have and insisting that they are just stupid objects? You know, what? what is, um, I, th- so I'm returning the question. In other words, you know, it's not so what, but I mean, what is so cool about looking at the world that way? Well, more and more of us have come to realize that trees not only talk to one another, but they actually take action based on their interaction with one another. They march, the trees march, as you know, uh, towards water. And you can see the march if you look at landscapes. And we know that. And I referenced uh, Rupert's work with the dogs, knowing that the people, are uh, the owners are coming home from a mile away. And so there is certainly, and, and, and of course, Stan Metz's work with mushrooms, and we're learning that uh, mycelium are talking to each other all over the world and, and may in fact have a hairnet that's covering the entire planet. So we are learning that which is lovely for, for communication for many of us, so that when we go out in nature, we have a sense that we're communicating with everything around us, not just the people that we're walking with on the trail. So if that's what you mean by the practical implications, then I, then I understand uh, you know, where you're coming from and what you're saying, why this is important. It has also it has implications, doesn't it, for how we care for our fellow beings called nature? Well, that's that's right. You see, um, one thing is recognizing the kinship that science has now um, uh, been able to even put numbers on. You know, like we have ninety nine percent DNA correspondence with chimpanzees and and so forth. The the the, the physical chemical kinship that we have with with nature is is undeniable um and so and the other thing is by considering plants and animals as beings like us rather than as objects devoid of intention and intelligence it opens up the possibility of relating with them having relations with our relatives Whereas if, if you insist on objectifying the world and considering it as just a big bunch of objects, um, it's much more difficult to relate to the world. It's a lot more easy to exploit it um, uh, at all levels. 
And I think that's been one of the uh, the upsides, if you wish, of the this way of, of looking at the world. It's made it very easy for human beings just to go ahead and exploit it and accumulate wealth uh, and, and not relate to it uh, as if the whole thing was just a bunch of objects for us, us to exploit. But considering plants and animals as intelligent beings like ourselves, which is, it's not only what they truly are, it's, it also opens up the possibility of identifying with them, having compassion for them, taking their point of view into consideration, developing relations with them, reconnecting uh, with the living world, and, and finding um, our place in that world. In other words, coming down, once you, we come down from the pedestal on which we have put ourselves in Western culture, above all the other species, once you come down from the pedestal, well, then it, it, the time comes to start working on having relations with these beings. And I think that's about where we're at right now. And so recognizing their capacities, their talents, their uh, uh, intelligence, uh, their capacity to know, as the Japanese would say, all this is part of uh, recovering from the, almost like the frigidity of uh, humanist objectivism, where, I mean, it was kind of lonely up on that pedestal, where we thought, and you see, if you take the shopping list I was talking about, this long list of things that Western thinkers have said we were the only ones to do, like, uh, 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 entertain abstract thoughts. Well, this has been uh, uh, falsified. I mean, bees can handle abstract concepts, and and they have brains the size of a a, a grain of salt. So, um, and this has been demonstrated uh, in a lab. The uh, we were supposed to be the only ones who use tools. Well, it turns out all kinds of animals use tools. Um, and on and on, the long list of so-called human specificities has been, has been melting like snow in the sun. Um, and it turns out that, well, what Darwin actually told us, we evolved and we're part of this whole biospheric life and we're members of the same family as all these plants and animals. And so... You know, we gotta gotta get used to it. So you're you're teaching us, Jeremy, if I understand correctly, plants and nature have intelligence. You're showing us that we can actually have a relationship with nature in the similar to ways in which we relate to one another. And you're now taking the position that plants can be teachers. And we're going to segue now into your book, Plants, uh, Plant Teachers. And I'd like to talk about your, uh, your work with nicotine and ayahuasca as teachers to humanity. So let's talk first about nicotine and how you got involved with nicotine and the differentiation between what you're talking about as nicotine and what we commonly refer to as nicotine in Western culture, which is something that's inside of commercially made uh, cigarettes. Okay. Well, um, first, I'd like to be clear uh, that I am not affirming that there is intelligence in nature. I am affirming that there are problems with the concept of intelligence and that it's very difficult to apply it to other species. And that uh, in a Western language like uh, English, we have an absence of concepts to be able to deal with what is there. Because if it's not intelligence, then there's something else going on. There's a, a capacity to know, a capacity to make decisions, a capacity to learn. Um, but then, and and even a capacity to be, to behave. But uh, each word, like with plants, we run into problems with words as soon as we use them. For example, the definition of behavior is to move. 
the movement is part of, it's difficult to have behavior if you don't have movement. And so when botanists talked about plant behavior, they got criticized because you can't really apply the word behavior to a plant because plants don't move. So that was the, the problem. Turns out plants do move. They just move a lot more, move, a lot more slowly. Yes. When bio, yes. uh, botanists talked about plant cognition, um, people said, wait a second, you can't talk about cognition because they don't have brains. Well, it's true that plants don't have brains. Um, and so this is, we define cognition as necessarily implying the presence of brains. Um, okay, so we can't use the word cognition, we can't use the word behavior, we can't use the word intelligence, and yet, when you look at what plants do, they seem to be doing things that would imply something like a capacity to uh, uh, cognize the world and, and so forth. So before uh, rushing up to the barricades and affirming that plants have cognition and plants do this and the other... Um, I, I think the important thing is to rush up to the barricades and say, we have a problem with our concepts because plants are doing all kinds of things and our concepts have, have these limits. Now, the same thing with plant teachers. Plant teachers is, is obviously a concept that would send your average Western thinker up the wall. In other words, it's, it's way too animist. Uh, plants don't teach. What are we talking about? You know, this is crazy stuff. Um, but actually, um, uh, you said I was a political activist. Uh, I have been working all my life uh, to back the initiatives of indigenous Amazonian people and also to um, try to act as a kind of a intermediary uh, and help make their way of understanding the world, their systems of knowledge, understandable. Well, these are people who consider plants like tobacco and like ayahuasca as teachers. From their point of view, what this means is that these are powerful psychoactive plants that when you ingest the effect that they have on your body and on your mind, among other things, can lead you to new perspectives, new understandings. In other words, you learn from the experience. And you the, the way that they uh, interpret this is that this plant is a powerful teacher and that's all they're saying they're also saying that plants in general um, have something like a personality that each species has a kind of intention and this is where the words once again get difficult that there is something like an energy an intelligence a personality uh, that goes with each species. And tobacco is different from ayahuasca. And when you interact with this plant, it, you, it has its own kind of signature or impact on your personality. And that's one way of, it's not necessarily necessary to believe that a plant has a personality, but you can certainly ingest it and experience the impact that it has on your personality. What I'm trying to do as an anthropologist is say, look, here are two powerful Amazonian plants that are now consumed around the world. One is tobacco. It has more than a billion users, a billion daily users around the world. Another is ayahuasca. It has maybe a thousand times less users, but it's um, been talked about a lot recently. Indigenous people in the Amazon, where these plants come from, have a long experience working with these plants. They say they're powerful, they're dangerous, they can teach you things, but they can also mislead you, um, and they certainly personify them. In other words, they don't just consider them to be bags of molecules. They don't deny that these plants contain substances, but they say there's more to these plants than just the substances they contain. And they consider them like, like us, like people, as if the plants had a point of view, had a personality. And when you interact with these plants by ingesting them, that they teach you things. So 
I think that it is interesting for Western people, including scientists who are interested in these powerful plants, to consider the indigenous point of view on the question. You don't have to subscribe to it or believe to believe in it, um, but you can um, become aware of it. And I think it's a point of view that is is fairly um, complementary to what science can tell us about these plants. You were talking about nicotine. Um, it's true. I try to focus, uh, like Amazonian people do, on the plant rather than on the specific molecules that the plants contain. But as a Westerner, I'm also interested in science, and I think it's in, it's important to know uh, about the molecules that the uh, the plants contain. I'd just like to say on on this question as to so a scientist would look at a plant at like a kind of a bag of molecules. And the indigenous Amazonian will look at a plant as a sentient being with a personality. So these seem to be two fairly distinct uh, approaches. But uh, when it comes to a human being, I am also a bag of molecules. It's true. I'm, I'm, I'm a bag of flesh. And, you know, you take a knife and you cut the flesh bag and, and blood comes out. Um, it, it really is true that I'm a walking flesh bag. But I'm also more than that. I'm a person. I have a point of view. Um, I have intention. Well, in the Amazonian point of view, that's how it is with plants as well. Yes, they are bags of molecules, but they are also sentient beings. Um, there is not a contradiction between those two points of view. Western, Western science would say that to attribute uh, uh, those characteristics to a plant is anthropomorphizing the plant, correct? Um, yeah, that's correct. That, that, is, that is correct. Um, the, the trouble is that if you are an anthropos, a, a human, uh, you can only use human concepts to understand um, whatever there is in the world. I mean, you, you necessarily use human concepts to understand the world. Um, so um, that would be uh, that would be one thing to uh, to say. Yeah, it's a way of saying since we're up on the pedestal and we're the only ones that have this particular characteristics. When something else shows those characteristics, what we're doing is attributing human characteristics to them rather than recognizing they may have their own uh, characteristics. Well, it's true. If we could speak um, something other than a human language, if we could understand the language of plants, I mean, plants speak in chemicals mainly. If you look at how plants communicate with one another, it's it's they're not... It's not sounds coming out of their mouths. They don't have mouths. Um, but it's it's with chemicals that they kind of squirt at each other or send up in the air or send down in the in the mycelium. Um, there's all kinds of exchanges and communication going on, and we're only just starting to to uh to understand it. Um and it's true that if we could uh speak outside of human concepts and language, then we would be less constrained by human concepts and, and language. But um, still, I don't think that uh, anthropomorphizing um, is um, an obstacle. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable. That's the, that's the thing. So or what are we going to do? We're going to say, oh, well, we, we can't talk about them really uh, because if we did, we'd be using human words. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, we we only have human words, um, and so and once you you have empathy uh, with another being, let's say a plant. Well, you are condemned to your human concepts, but I think it's preferable to try to understand the plant's point of view, even if one does have a tendency to anthropomorphize, um, simply because um, it's better than nothing. Um, you know. Well, in, in a way, from, from what you're saying, it sounds to me like to anthropomorphize a plant would be insulting. 
it, it would be like, you know, meeting a person from another country and only being willing to relate to them in terms of the country that you came from, uh, taking into no consideration whatsoever their culture, their language, and what country they're from. You, you, you said yes. everything has to be right. Yes, sort of but- what America, what America does in a way, which is judge the entire world based on what we are here in America. Well, see, I think that we're coming. Uh, when I say we, I mean Western people. Um, we're 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 coming from a, um, a long way out. We've got a, a lot of ground to sort of catch up, and so um, we have presumed that all other species didn't have a point of view. Um, this is when Amazonian people say that there's a person inside the plant, a person like us. Um, and, and that is the heart of the shamanic approach. What they're saying is there's somebody home in there that has a point of view and philosophers talk about this. How, how do you actually define? So what is a person? It's actually something quite difficult to define. By some definitions, a person is an entity that has a point of view. So by, and, and this is not, I, I don't think that this is anthropomorphizing. The uh, opening one's mind to the idea that, for example, a blade of grass might have a point of view. Um, uh, and, and so there's, it may sound like anthropomorphism because I say, okay, it means there's a person inside. So I'm projecting a person in that blade of grass. No, I'm um, considering that that blade of grass is a sentient being. And like myself, it aspires to live and this can be ascertained by just observing it. It, it makes all kinds of uh, uh, decisions. It takes actions to thrive. And actually, I do the same, or at least I try to when I wake up in the morning. Um, you know, so that conceiving that there's somebody, someone home rather than nobody home, and that that somebody who is home inside of the blade of grass has a point of view, and that that point of view includes looking out for number one, in other words, uh, me, the blade of grass. Um, and so it, it wants to have sunlight, it wants to have food. I mean, it, you know, it wants its place in the sun, just like you and me. Um, is this anthropomorphism? No, I think it has to do um, with, with simply considering that a blade of grass is more than just an object, that it actually is a sentient being. And like all living sentient beings, it aspires to uh, live. If we take a look at human beings, we see that there are characteristics that are shared and there are characteristics which are idiosyncratic to individual people. Can you say the same about ayahuasca and tobacco, uh, Amazonian tobacco? Well, you know, actually, uh, thank you uh, for the question, um, because it, it really it, uh, is going to make us uh, advance in, in this discussion. Um, botanists have pointed out that plants are not really individuals, because the word individual means undividable. An individual is somebody, this is what the word means, it, it, it cannot be divided. If I cut you in two, you're finished. Um, plants are individuals. They can be divided. And then, and so you divide the cut the plant and it becomes two plants. Plants have this uh, thing about them. Um, you know, you cut a tree and then all kinds of little trees grow out of the roots. Um, so when here we are, we are animals, and, and as animals we are individuals. There are some animals that you can cut in two and they become two animals like worms, but they're rare. The overwhelming majority of animals 
uh, they move around to feed themselves and they get a lot of their food from plants, in fact, um, and they are individuals. And so um, we don't only have human concepts, we have animal concepts. You know, like the, the idea that behavior necessarily implies movement is a very animal uh, uh, concept. Um, the idea that um, a consciousness must somehow be individual is also a very animal concept. So here we are, we're stuck inside of our animal bodies with our animal concepts, and we're trying to start to understand plants and their points of view or their intelligence or their capacities or just who they are. We can see how uh, they, they keep showing the limits of our own concepts, which is uh, interesting, but still moving beyond the consideration of the limits of our own concepts. Um, it, so we got to start thinking about, well, so how do plants see things? Well, that involves thinking, what does it mean when you are not an individual? Um, how does the, you know, uh, I really do think of the world um, as an individual. In other words, I'm, I'm forever thinking inside my own head uh, about, you know, the books or, I mean, I dialogue with other people and so forth, but, you know, I spend my life focused as an individual. Um, but plants clearly don't do that. And, and uh, I have really yet to imagine the full implications of what it means to be individuals. You know, so that we're like, it's like we're in kindergarten when it comes to understanding who plants are, what plants are. Uh, not only do we have to rethink many of our concepts, but um, it, it's difficult for us to, to expand our animal minds and start thinking in the way that plants think. Um, I mean, Trees are forever exchanging uh, uh, nutritious elements. They're, they're being called the communists of the, uh, of the natural world. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on in the vegetal world that uh, we're only just coming to realize. And there are also selfish plants, plants that poison the ground around them so only they can grow, like a eucalyptus. Um, you know, there, there's... Uh, there's carnivorous plants. There's just like there's all kinds of individuals uh, among humans. It's true that there are all kinds of plants, and and some of them are are not very nice. In fact, my my co-author uh, Rafael uh, Chanchari in our book uh, Plant Teachers points to the fact that all the plants that people in the Amazon consider to be teachers and that scientists would consider to be psychoactive are ambiguous. You know, they're not necessarily benevolent. Um, they, can, they can teach you things, but they, they can also harm you and, and mislead you. Um, so there's all kinds of um, thinking that needs to be, and, and research that needs to be done uh, to, for us to really start understanding what plants are up to and, and who they are. One of the very important things it sounds like you're bringing to us, Jeremy, are the limitations of our languaging system, of, the, of what we have developed in making these grunts and sounds that we decode and call words to describe things in the world. And it, it, it sounds like what you're t t bringing to us is that our grunts, are, are still um, somewhat, they're, they're limiting, they're obfuscating, they're, st they're still basically grunts in, in various areas. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, you, 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 it's, what you say is very pertinent, but I, I, would, I would add to it. I, I mean, you know, clearly human language is fantastic. Um, it, it seems weird to write books and then to trash human language. Um, there's something miraculous about a book where you, you choose these words. They're not even grunts. They're ink on paper at this point. And you can share what's in your mind with, with lots of other people. And they actually get the message. 
there, there's something really very magical about uh, human language and uh, human communications. But, and, but what I'd add, I agree entirely with what you said uh, before, but I think what I'd add to it is that where we get into trouble is that our language is so powerful and so magical that we don't see its limits. And its limits are um, precisely that the, our words tend to have baggage that we don't see, and they carry around the presuppositions of uh, of our culture. So, if our culture has said, for example, uh, humans are the only ones who are intelligent, and um, so a, a concept like nature, nature the, is everything that is not human. Well, it's true. This is a kind of a grunty concept by people who are on a pedestal. But then we don't we don't realize that because we're inside that culture. And then we go around and we say, oh, I love nature. I'm a friend of nature. And we just use the word. And it's true. At this point, the word has some serious limits. I mean, the word nature presupposes a, a fundamental distinction between ourselves and, and all the rest. So I think that's the main problem with human language is that it, it kind of bedazzles us with its magic, and then we stop seeing uh, its limits. 36 years ago, I was a young anthropologist, and I went to the Peruvian Amazon to study uh, how Ashaninka people living in the rainforest used the rainforest and understood it, what they knew about the plants and the animals where they lived. Um, this was actually politically motivated research because at this point, uh, development organizations like the World Bank were arguing that indigenous people didn't know how to use the uh, rainforest rationally and that taking their lands away from them was economically justified. So the point was to study uh, indigenous knowledge about the rainforest and show that indigenous people had a lot of solid knowledge. So I started living with Ashaninka people and, and asking them to show me what they knew about the plants in the forest. And they knew all kinds of plants and described all kinds of uses to these plants. And I would try these different plants whenever there was the opportunity, you know, a, a plant that accelerates the healing of wounds or a plant that heals chronic backache or so forth, and found that these plants worked. So I began asking the Ashaninka uh, um, how they knew what they knew about plants. And this is where ayahuasca came in, because they told me, different people told me on different occasions, we know about the medicinal properties of these plants because we take ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogenic plant mixture, or eat tobacco concentrate. And this allows us to perceive the invisible entities inside these different plants and to understand their properties. So this seemed to be a, a kind of an enigma. Essentially, they were saying that their verifiable knowledge about plants came from the hallucinations of their shamans. This seemed to be like an impossibility. And, and it, it, if you consider that there's verifiable information in your hallucinations, that's the definition of psychosis. You know, in my view, it couldn't be true. Um, but one day I was speaking with uh, another Ashaninka fellow, and I asked that same question, how do you know what you know about plants? And the fellow said, Brother Jeremy, if you want to understand the answer to that question, you have to drink ayahuasca. It's, it's the television of the forest. It'll show you images and you will learn things. And if you like, I can show you sometime. And uh, I was curious. I accepted his proposition, and one night, uh, in the company of this young ayahuasquero, I, I swallowed the bitter brew and um, had a most uh, extraordinary experience. Um, of uh, you know, I was a 
a materialist, humanist, rationalist from the suburbs. And the next thing I knew, I was surrounded by enormous fluorescent serpents that began explaining to me that I was just a tiny human being. And I could see that that they were right, that my I could see my own worldview and all of its arrogance. I presumed that what my eyes were showing me didn't exist. The, the, these, these fluorescent serpents were a hundred times more intense than ordinary reality. Uh, it, it was just something that, that couldn't be uh, brushed aside. Uh, the entire experience would be too long to, to tell here, but I eventually blasted out of my body, found myself miles above the planet, and so forth. I saw hundreds of thousands of images like the veins of a human hand flashing back and forth with the veins of a green leaf. And the, the, the kind of in-my-face message was, look, it's the same stuff, a plant and a human, boom, 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 boom. Um, well, the next day, um, I went down to the river to freshen up, and I, I looked at I took a leaf from a bush and held it up to the sun, and I could see that actually it was literally true that the 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 feel of the uh, the leaf, uh, the texture was just like this, my skin, and the overall experience was like a, an antidote to the anthropocentrism of anthropology. It was that okay, I may be just a tiny human being, but I'm part of this whole living world. I'm kind of like a walking plant. It, it it felt like a a reconciliation with all of nature for the the first time in my twenty five years of existence. So, what the Ashaninka had told me was true. You could see images and learn things. Um, I'd learned that I was a small human being, but somehow part of nature in just one sitting. Um, so this was intriguing to say the least. And at the same time, it was somewhat um, intimidating because I knew that if I took it too seriously and returned to university and started talking about what the fluorescent serpents had told me after I swallowed the hallucinogenic plant brew uh, of the uh, shamans, uh, that it might make it a bit more difficult to get a doctorate in anthropology. So I kind of turned my back on ayahuasca for, for eight years or so, went ahead and got the doctorate. Uh, but all along, I knew that there was something there that um, needed to be looked into. Namely, that here were people living in the most biodiverse place on Earth, saying that a part of their knowledge about the plants in this environment came from the visions of their shamans and from this, this plant brew. Their knowledge about plants at this point was widely recognized by uh, uh, in, in uh, pharmaceutical industries. And at the same time, we couldn't really talk with them about the origin of their knowledge as they themselves talked about it. Um, and so that's what initially uh, got my attention with ayahuasca, was that it, it posed a kind of fundamental enigma regarding the origin of uh, indigenous Amazonian knowledge. And it was testable. In other words, it, it was only too testable. You could, all you had to do to test it was to swallow the liquid. And then what you would see once you'd done that was too real, too intense, too powerful, too filled with information. Um, the uh, antidote to the anthropocentrism of anthropology was just what the young anthropologist that I was needed to learn, that there was more to this world than human beings. But it took me years to actually take the full measure of that teaching. So that was the um, uh, enigma of ayahuasca, a very powerful very rich, and somehow off the radar of Western knowledge um, and central to indigenous Amazonian knowledge. So that's what made it, for me, uh, necessary to look into it. That original experience certainly expanded 
your consciousness and your awareness of yourself and the world and, uh, and the universe around you. In the decades that have followed, have you seen examples of, of real healing using ayahuasca? And if so, what kind of healing have you seen? Yeah, the kind of healing that one sees with ayahuasca tends to be uh, mind-oriented. People with uh, trauma, people with anxiety, uh, people with uh, poor self-image. Um, you can work on your um, mind and on your person and on your life uh, with ayahuasca. I think it, it also contains health-enhancing substances. I think that it can clean you and it can also uh, make you um, stronger, more resistant. It, it reinforces the immune system. It tends to make people aware of, their, of what they eat. So it can improve your own life hygiene. Um, that is the kind of um, thing that I see ayahuasca doing. Um, it can also cause trouble. I mean, it, it is a powerful uh, hallucinogenic plant. Um, you know, it can it can dissolve egos, but it can amplify egos. Um, there, it, it 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 can be problematic when it dissolves egos, and it and uh, but it can also be um, fairly therapeutic. It really depends on 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 who you are. I think that the word psychedelic is fairly appropriate in that it does reveal the psyche and so what you what you get from ayahuasca depends on what's in your psyche in other words it depends on who you are you know it's certainly not a solution to all the problems and all the illnesses in the world but it's something that's worthy of of uh, further research and it, now it's being looked into as an antidepressant um uh, it's it's it it is being developed in that way in Brazil uh, right now. So once again, the conditions that it it has a, a clear effect on tend to involve the the mind and the brain. Yes, I don't know if you're familiar with my book, Psychedelic Medicine, but I I the four medicines in there are ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin, and I would love to be able to talk to you more about that. But I want to be sure. respectful of your time. I know you have to leave right now. So thank you very much for being with us today. And perhaps we can pick up on this at another time, if that's all right with you. Richard, I'd be happy to do that. I, I do have your book. And yes, I think that uh, these substances and plants are fascinating and uh, worthy of uh, wide interest. Thank you, Jeremy Narby. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please tune in again next week at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, I remind you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right.